Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this occasion that brings us together to study the sufficiency of the truth of your word. And Father, just key ways in which it's applicable to the issues of life. Father, we pray that you'd give us wisdom during this hour as we see what your word has to say about our communication. Uh, Father, that you'd give us wisdom, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth. And Father, wisdom for applying your truth both to our hearts and Father, in this training uh, for how we would be uh, competent counselors of your word. We pray you'd be glorified in all of this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So uh, I expect many of you have experienced the reality of this quote, that nothing is so simple that it cannot be misunderstood. You can think that you have communicated something in the simplest and clearest and most basic terms imaginable and find quickly that the person you've spoken to just has missed it completely, totally taking you the wrong way. Uh, And in case that isn't your experience, uh, by way of illustration and for your entertainment, uh, I have some examples of this. Uh, From the top here, what he heard... I'm going to make you wish you were dead for the rest of your life. What she actually said, tell me the truth, honey. Do I look fat in this? (laughs) And then again on the bottom, what she heard, anything less than absolute perfection makes you a failure as a wife. What he said, mom is coming over for dinner. (laughs) Okay, just a couple more. On the top, what she heard, life as we know it will cease to exist unless you can alter the space-time continuum. What he said, honey, are you almost ready? (laughs) And then what he heard, honey, why don't you put your head in a vice and I'll turn the handle until your head explodes. What she said, honey, why don't we turn off the TV and just talk? So a little bit more seriously, from the Bible, from Amos, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, can two walk together unless they are agreed? Uh, And in the context there, uh, the minor prophet Amos is talking about the fact that God is out of fellowship with his people because they are at odds with him through their sin. And uh, the imagery here of walking together, you have to imagine, and I, what comes to my mind is the disciples with Jesus on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. In that day, in that context, if you're walking on the road with someone, you're probably the only two people for miles around, and you're going to be spending a lot of time with each other. And can those two people walk together in the same direction if they're not on the same page? And the answer is no, and Amos is using that illustratively to say there is a problem here. And he is saying, let's talk about it. And God is saying, through this text, through many texts, let's talk about it. Let's communicate. And I would say, uh, actually, this is, this is my first time giving this lecture, but the content of this lecture is probably my most used content, perhaps second to the basics of the gospel itself, uh, in all of the counseling I do. Uh, I told my wife I was doing this lecture, and she does a lot of marital counseling with me. And she's, so she's heard this content over and over again. I said, actually, I've never taught the lecture before. Uh, but the, 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 the content is so useful. 
Uh, it's probably, and I'll, I'll elaborate on this, it's probably just in terms of practicality, the number one issue in counseling is how to bring the word to bear on communication. <clears throat> and so, as with every other topic in this conference, and as with every other topic in life, when we have the conviction that the word of God is sufficient to address the issues of life, we, of course, open our Bibles. And so, would you open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, open to the book of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a wonderful gift to the church. It's addressed to people who hardly realize how rich they are in Christ. And that is uh, largely, especially in the first three chapters of Ephesians, the purpose why Paul writes. He wants to let this church know, and by extension, he wants to let us know as his church today, how rich we are in Christ. And this starts in chapter 1 as Paul attempts to convey to us the unfathomable glory of the God who loves us. We see his glory in what he has done. Namely, he called us and he chose us. He adopted us into his family, making us co-heirs with Christ to everything that belongs to the Father. Beyond that, we read that he enlightened us with his wisdom and he gave us the Holy Spirit as a pledge or as a down payment on our heavenly inheritance. So we get everything that belongs to Jesus and the experience of that, the enjoyment of it, the certainty of it starts now through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us. And all of this is given to us, Paul says, because of our new relationship with Christ. And this is a major theme in Ephesians, that in God's eyes, we are now in Christ. Those are among the most often repeated words in the book of Ephesians. Just those two words, in Christ. God has placed us in union with Jesus and we can now enjoy fellowship. So that issue of broken fellowship, the difficulty that is so often present because of our sin, God has effectively, theologically, once and for all taken care of, but he's also given us the ministry of his Holy Spirit in the here and now so that in practical ways we can enjoy fellowship. And that starts, we get to enjoy fellowship with him with with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father because of this salvation that is ours in Christ. So that's sort of in a nutshell, chapter 1. In chapter 2, Paul explains how we got to be in Christ. He says this, verse 8, It is by grace that you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And then the truly amazing thing is that God did all of that, chapter 2, verse 1, while we were dead in trespasses and sins. And so what we couldn't possibly do being dead, God did through Jesus, through his death on the cross in our place. So again, just building this vision of the glorious riches that are ours in Jesus, continuing on into chapter 3, Paul then reveals that because we are in Christ, we are also now in his church. That is to say that believers from all nationalities, and Paul is majoring just on Jews and Gentiles, but believers from all nationalities and ethnicities who are in Christ now have communion with one another. We are, chapter 3, verse 6, fellow heirs and fellow members of his body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. 
So not only do we get to have fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we get to have fellowship. And this is just a theological reality. We are actually in union. We are in communion with one another. And so it's no wonder then that in verse 14, Paul tells us that he bows before the Father, praying that we would be able to comprehend the love of God for us, which surpasses understanding. It's just just absolutely glorious, the theological riches that are unfolded for us, that belong to us in Christ uh, through the first chapters, first three chapters of Ephesians. Now in chapter 4, the focus of the letter shifts. Those first three chapters, as I've described, are rich theology. The final three chapters have more to do with the practical issues of life. Whereas the first three chapters reveal our standing in Christ, the final three chapters talk about how we are to live with one another in Christ. Now, the fact that that theological reality is true and present and affected through the death of Christ and our having been saved is a gift by faith, through faith, that's not from ourselves. It's a gift so that no one can boast. It hasn't all at once worked out all of our practical issues. And so Paul turns his attention in chapter 4 to how that's going to work. Notice how he begins chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And so we see, starting with verse 1, that the main thrust of Ephesians 4 is how is about how a person's life is supposed to change after he or she becomes a Christian. Now we know this, I think, from our experience, most of us anyway, that some things just sort of change automatically. God makes you alive as a gift through faith, and all of a sudden you just don't have a taste for some of your sin anymore. You don't want to do it anymore. And that is just a wonderful thing. But is that how our relationship to all of our sin goes? No. We know that there are also things that we end up having to strive and put a great deal into effort to change. Uh, there are certain things Paul teaches that we need to put off from our lives and other things we should put on so that we should, we would fulfill the purpose that he's unfolded for us in Ephesians 1 through 3. And really when it comes down to it, verse, verse 1 of chapter 4 is getting to the fact of our purpose. We get to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we've been called, which means we get to show and to tell the world what God is like. Now, by his grace, he is so patient with us, and some of those things he just, like I said, changes up front when he saves us. But others of those things, it takes a lifetime to work those things out, and by his grace, he, he, he transforms us and conforms us further to the image of his son, making us a reflection of what he wants to show to the world. So he does this, uh, th- including through our effort, causing us to show and tell what the world what the god is what god is like so uh how do we as a church and therefore as individual believers also get to do that how do we do that uh that is the practical concern of much of the rest of ephesians and as paul dives into this it's interesting to note that the first issue paul addresses uh in this respect is our communication uh, now, in the interest of full disclosure, uh, you should know, and you may know this already, you have uh, four rules of communication on the page in front of you. Uh, I don't know how many resources 
uh, I have used that have the four rules in them. Uh, and I don't even know where they came from originally. I suspect it was Dr. Bob Smith or Dr. Wayne Mack maybe a long time ago. So this content is not original to me. It's been used by many others uh, previously. And I, like I said, I've used it in the counseling room for years. Uh, and so it's hugely beneficial, and you'll see how it comes from uh, Ephesians 4. And we're going to be looking specifically at verses 25 to 32. So turn your eyes there, and we are going to start to learn the four rules of communication, starting with rule number one, which is be honest. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. And there we go. Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, this is the first exhortation, the first imperative that Paul gives in terms of explaining to us how we're going to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And the first thing to notice here is the main verb in the sentence, which is speak. God commands us to speak. The word speak here, as I, as I mentioned, is an imperative. It is a command. You see, sometimes when there is a problem in the home or just in life in general, we can expect the other person just to read our minds and to know what that problem is. But God doesn't tell us to guess at what the other, what the other person is thinking or to expect the other person to guess at what we're thinking. He commands us to speak. That's the first thing, the main verb in uh, verse 25, to speak. And so, letter B, clamming up is not an option. If we are going to solve the problem, we must speak to one another. Wayne Mack writes this, Perhaps there are moments when silence is golden, but if that is your usual way of responding to opposition, to conflict, honest differences of opinion, criticism, or disagreement, you will never develop a close relationship with anyone. So first, speak. Secondly, what must we speak? And the answer is, speak truth. Now, as I noted, speak is an imperative, uh, present active imperative verb. And in this context, that involves continuous action. And that is to say, we must always be speaking. And what must we always be speaking? Truth to one another. Now, I don't know if that begins to ring any bells of somewhere else in Scripture where we are told to be always talking and that the content of our speech is to be truth. Ring any bells? Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, God says this, starting in verse 6. These words, so the content of all of the law that God has given to, to his people through Moses, he says, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. So talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So how often? Always. We must always be speaking the truth to one another. And in a much smaller nutshell, that's what Paul is saying there, present active imperative, continuous ongoing action, speak truth to one another. But backing up, notice the first thing Paul mentions in the verse 
is what we are to put off. We are to put off lying or falsehood. Now, before you jump to the conclusion that this doesn't apply to you because you don't lie, let's think, letter B, about different ways we tend to engage in communicating falsehood. And maybe that first one that occurred to you, and you, you might have thought I can exempt myself from that, is just outright deceit. And by God's grace, I trust there are a lot of us in this room that don't fall into this trap uh, of a deliberate lie, a falsification or denial of the truth. And probably of all of these, that's the, that's the one that's most likely to just hit us in our consciences if we even think about exercising in it. But the rest of these are a little bit more subtle. Uh, second one is incongruences. Just the difference between what you're saying, what your words are saying, and what your body language is communicating. There's a lack of openness and a lack of honesty there. It is a form of deceit. Thirdly, and this one's probably a little bit easier to see, although we still fall into this, is using 100% words. Wayne Mack calls this lethal exaggeration. Uh, using words like you always or you never. And here are just some examples. You're always late. You're always too tired. You're never ready on time. You yell all the time. I always have to clean up after you. You have an excuse for everything. You'll never learn. You never listen to me. You're always dissatisfied no matter what I do. The only time you're nice to me is when you want something. You're the worst housekeeper I've ever known. (laughs) So, I mean, as humorous as some of those are, we do fall into those, and I won't say always, but from time to time. (laughs) They're all sweeping generalizations, and because of that, they're actually not accurate. In addition to being harsh and unloving, all of these statements are dishonest. They're lies. So, how do we move away from that? Lou Priola has a suggestion for us. If there really is some sinful snare into which your husband or wife regularly falls, try using phrases such as you tend to, or I think I've observed the pattern, or you seem to habitually struggle. You catch the difference there? This is part of what it means to let our words always be gracious, as if seasoned with salt, as Paul says in Colossians 4, verse 6. Rather than engaging in dishonest 100% words, instead being attentive and gracious in the ways Priolo suggests, I'm sorry, being tentative, being tentative and gracious in the way he suggests, will have a better chance of softening hearts. And this really is both your heart. If you, if you pause from make, making one of those sweeping generalizations and say to yourself, okay, that's not always true. That's not fair. Right away, that tends to have a softening effect on your heart. And it's going to be much less provocative and have more of a tendency to soften the person that you're talking to. Uh, the fourth way we tend to engage in communicating falsehood, number four, failing to reveal the truth when asked. And probably this will be familiar. Someone will ask, what's wrong? And the answer will be nothing. And again, this isn't just dishonest because there probably is something wrong. It's also clamming up. Like we talked about a moment ago, you have to speak and speak the truth. Uh, number five, blame shifting. You know, someone will do something, and you'll say, "What was that about?" And the answer is, "Well, it wasn't my fault. He did or she did that." 
As Lou Priolo observes, this is literally the oldest trick in the book, blame shifting. The man said, Genesis 3.12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. So what was the first man's response to the first confrontation of sin? Blame shifting. By not admitting his guilt and instead trying to shift the blame to his wife, Adam was practicing a subtle form of deceit that, of course, is still with us today. So we need to put off all of these ways, including the subtle ones and maybe even especially the subtle ones because we've done a better job with the more obvious ones. We need to put off all false speech. But of course, honesty is more than simply not lying, right? Honesty means being open and honest about the truth. And we want to quickly follow that up by by acknowledging that this is not just about behavior. It is an attitude of the heart. Truthful speak, I'm sorry, truthful speech is one of the marks of a true Christian. And it's something that needs to flow from the heart. Uh, and I can't think of a better text for this than 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, that's, that's, you want to write that one down. First John, I don't think it's in your notes there. First John 1, verses 6 and 7. And in a nutshell, what is John saying there? That the child of God who has fellowship with God will have an open and honest attitude about his or her sin. He or she will walk in the light as the Father is in the light. And what does that result in? Fellowship with each other as the gospel has its way in us. And referencing that text always actually makes me think of one of the first times I had lunch with my pastor, Dan Kirk, and he said, do you want to know the most important scripture text for marriage? And I said, yeah, what is it? And he opened to this text. He said, this is the most important scripture for marriage. Uh, because if you will walk in the light, having an open and honest attitude about your sin, then you will have fellowship with your wife. And we'll see that, I think, work out as we look through here more. But just hugely significant that honesty means being open and honest about the truth and that this is a gospel-driven attitude of the heart. So as believers, we must speak. And when we do, we must speak the truth. But that's not all. We must speak the truth lovingly. Loving communication is not brutal with the truth. And uh, I think we see this, and perhaps especially in sort of the, the typical dialogue we see politically is what occurs to me. You know, people can feel very justified in having a point of truth, but what do they do with it? They tend towards brutality with the truth, and that is not the way we are to use the truth. It's natural to speak, and we see this again, we see this all over, and, and I think if we're honest, we'll see this in ourselves probably too, that it's natural to speak in a spiteful, harsh, angry, or judgmental way without giving any forethought. And so what is the cure for that tendency? And the answer, of course, is to give forethought. Christians are to speak, and you think about this ahead of time, with the other person's best interests in mind. 
Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4 talk about not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also looking to the interests of others. So we think ahead. Will my speech serve the other person? Am I speaking or anticipating that I'm going to speak lovingly? Colossians 4, verse 6 again says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as with salt. Will the words that I'm thinking about saying bless the other person? Now, speaking the truth lovingly is not about unleashing your feelings and telling the other person what's really on your mind. Uh, this sort of culturally and psychologically is, is a common thing to think, okay, I'm going to get the truth all out there on the table and it's going to be cathartic for me. It's going to be a release. And that is not the way to think about speaking the truth. Speaking the truth means lovingly, I'm sorry, means telling the facts. Speaking the truth lovingly means telling the facts. Uh, it's not about unleashing your feelings. It's rather about resolving problems for the glory of Christ. And just honestly, humbly, contritely laying out the facts the way you see them and tentatively asking for input from the person who's hearing from you is going to be the way to get those facts out in a loving way, not, again, like letter A, using them brutally. Uh, just a few more characteristics of loving communication, letter D. Loving communication does not interrupt. Uh, and, of course, the, the context here is different, but the principle will transfer over. James says in chapter 1, verse 19, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Loving communication does not talk over the other person. It doesn't interrupt in anger or in impatience. And very much connected with that next, loving communication is not inattentive. Uh, I know this tendency in myself to sit there and wait while someone else is talking, thinking about what I'm going to say when they're done. And that is not good communication. You want to not tune out. You want to not start forming your mental responses while the other person is speaking. You want to listen to them. Loving communication is not inattentive. Uh, next, loving communication. Loving communication does not judge motives. And this one, uh, I just want to spend a moment talking about uh, for, for, for one reason. I'll point you to uh, the blog, the cbcd.org. Um, and I don't remember how long ago. It was within the last month or two. I wrote a blog post on this. There's a tendency uh, that I've seen spring up, I'd say fairly recently, and this is reflective actually of a good thing in evangelicalism and in the biblical counseling movement, that we've shifted away from sometimes more behaviorism, where we're paying less attention to the heart, to more of a focus on the heart. And that's a good thing. You've probably heard this repeatedly uh, in track one, that we want our... Uh, pursuit of godliness, our pursuit of resolving counseling issues to not just be a matter of externals or habits. We want it to be a matter of what's going on in the heart. We want to go to the heart to address the issues. Now, there's been a tendency where that hasn't been teased out in all the practical ways maybe it should be to think when it comes to communication and conflict resolution, I can't take someone uh, in the plain sense of what they're saying. I need to get at their heart motives. And that is in direct contradiction to Scripture. It's not your job in communication, and particularly in resolving disputes, to get at someone else's heart. 
in another context, you might be able to help them with this. But in terms of communication, you seek to take them at face value. Uh, and, and the key text for this, uh, I think it's in your notes. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Uh, Paul writes this, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So whose job is it to get at the heart? God's. God will disclose those motives. And and we, we do have a responsibility. So this is where it comes into play in the counseling room. A counselor can help a counselee get at their heart motivations. But when it comes to communication like this, we, we take each other at face value. 1 Corinthians 13, love believes all things and love hopes all things. Doesn't suspect heart motives. It's God's job and he promises he will be faithful to be the one to expose those. So that I've just seen is a, is actually a cause for a lot of unresolved conflict among Christians is suspicion of heart motivations that then just leads to they can't see eye to eye on what's going on in each other's hearts, which makes sense because they're already in a conflict and that just doesn't work. Uh, next, letter G, loving communication uses an economy of words. Uh, James uh, 3 and like the whole book of Proverbs give us many warnings about the power and the destructive tendencies of the tongue. Proverbs 10 verse 19 says, when words are many, transgression is unavoidable. So loving communication doesn't say more than is necessary to get to the truth. And it certainly doesn't go out of its way to defend itself and make its case and all of that, but it uses an economy of words. Uh, and sort of a funny, helpful truism, uh, don't say boo-hoo when boo will do. <laughs> we have uh, a brother at Calvary Bible Church who was on our elder board for years, uh, Frank Shannon, and he is just a dear brother. And we still, although I think he's been off the elder board for probably four years, we use his truisms all the time, and this is one of them. <laughs> Don't say boo-hoo when boo will do. An economy of words. So the first rule of communication is be honest. To be honest, we must speak, we must speak the truth, and we must speak the truth in a loving manner. So rule one, be honest. Second rule of communication is keep current. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. It is important that we solve today's problems today. Uh, one of the things you see here in verse 26 is that even righteous anger can become sinful anger when it is not dealt with quickly. You see that the first words there are be angry. So I think that's an acknowledgement on Paul's part that there are some occasions that warrant anger, but don't sin by not letting the sun go down on your anger. You deal with it. You deal with it quickly. So why is this important? Uh, Jesus gives us some insight in Matthew 6 when he says that each day has enough trouble of its own. You carry today's Troubles, today's problems into tomorrow, and you'll become backlogged. Uh, practically, 
we probably have many examples we could point to of this. Unresolved anger often leads to bitterness. And again, I think one an indicator there in verse 26 is even when it's righteous anger, if it's not resolved, it's not handled, it can lead to bitterness. Uh, very closely connected with that, again, the, the concept of clamming up. What does it do? It gives the devil uh, a foothold or an opportunity uh, there in verse 27. Unresolved anger, and this is just generally true, will lead to resentment, which leads to a deep sense of bitterness. Uh, and you may have heard this referred to, and maybe not since you're, some of you, maybe most of you are on track one for the first time. Wayne Mack likes to call this gunny sacking, which is probably a term from his generation. <laughs> I'm only familiar with it because of this content. Uh, but the concept is helpful, and as a matter of fact, Dr. Mack has a story he tells, and there are a number of guys who have this story, and I know Pastor Dan said one of them got it from someone else, and they've just been spreading it as a story, and they all use it as their own until one day this happened to him. So it's, I think, probably always a marriage case, and one of the spouses will come in with a three-ring binder about this thick and drop it on the counselor's desk. And the counselor will say, well, what's that? Now, probably all the counselors know what it is. It is a record of all the wrongs that my spouse has committed against me. And so he knows, and this is just sort of what's true, that we carry around unresolved offenses until they become so heavy that now they get dropped on the counselor's desk. So, again, what's the what's the solution for that? 1 John 1, 6 and 7. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we will live with an open and honest attitude about our sins, we're not going to, you know, accumulate a three, a three ring binder that thick of all the offenses that the people close to us have committed against us. In fact, if you're practicing things the way you should be practicing them, your sin is the one that you're always seeing and wanting to repent of and deal with in an open and honest manner. Uh, just a note, uh, in terms of uh, one practical outworking of this, uh, this is uh, talking about, how does it put it, keep current. Uh, we, we sometimes call it at Calvary, keeping a short account of sins. just means the same thing. We use that language in uh, our membership documents. And when we get to the point in bringing new members in the church where a, a prospective new member sits down with a couple of elders, this is one of the distinctives of Calvary Bible Church that we're sure to point out in every new member meeting uh, for a couple reasons. One is this is connected with church discipline, which a lot of churches don't practice. Uh, but secondly, one of the things that we just love that the Lord has given us at Calvary is a sense of unity. There's just a sweet fellowship. People live in loving community with one another and take care of each other's needs and walk in an understanding way with each other. And usually by the time someone gets to membership, they've noticed that and we'll ask, you know, what do you, why do you want to become a member? And they'll say, well, we just, the love of this body, the unity of the body is really compelling. And we'll say, great. That's in part because we point this out in every membership meeting that we keep short accounts of sin. And we want you to know you're signing on to that. We think the Lord has provided a way to deal with our sin. And we point to Matthew uh, 18 and Luke 17, the four steps that, that, that Jesus gives in Matthew 18. And we say, church discipline in this respect is going on 
every time we meet because sinners, when they live in close community with each other, sin against each other. And most often it's just step one. You go to the person and say, yeah, I might have misunderstood this, but you did this and, and I was offended or I was hurt. Uh, can we talk about that and, and be restored to each other? And 99% of the time, that's all the further it goes. Uh, by God's grace, step four of church discipline maybe happens once every 10 years. It's extremely rare, but the reason for that is keeping current, keeping a short account of sin. So that's what we want to do, and I, I got to some specifics there in, a, in terms of practicality, uh, but here are seven questions. So how does this work? How do you keep current? Well, you go and you confront sin, but if there's ever a time to be tentative and slow and reflective before you go and do something, it's with this. So seven questions. This is one of the most important parts of this. Seven questions to ask yourself before confronting someone. First one, do I have the facts? Is it true? Proverbs 18 gives several warnings along these lines. Verse 13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Go tentatively. You are not omniscient. You don't know the perspective of the other person until you ask. So go tentatively and make sure that the facts you think you have are actually facts. Secondly, should love cover it? And there can be discussion about what it means for love to cover something. I have in mind here the concept that also appears in Proverbs, that it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. So uh, if we are pretty sure that that person didn't even intend an offense against us and we can just let it slide and not make an issue of it, and that might be better for them and better for us, and it's not a pattern and it's not hurting anyone, then love can probably cover it. So that can stop you in your tracks right there. I don't even have to go. Next, is my timing right? Should it wait? Uh, you know, and I can just imagine times, uh, and we, we sometimes just get this, this sense, you know, this is, it is time to take care of this. It doesn't matter what's going on. Maybe it's in the middle of a birthday party or just before a wedding. And the answer is probably not right now. Timing is not right. Uh, a man has joy in an apt answer, Proverbs 15:23. How delightful is a timely word. And then verse 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. You can't go wrong being slow on this. Now, you can't also wait forever, but these are encouragements to be deliberate and to be slow. Next, now, you know, whereas you can't judge other people's motives, you should evaluate your own. Is my attitude right in this? You want your, your bringing up this sin to not come from any kind of vindictiveness. You're thinking, you should be thinking of yourself as someone who's in a position to restore someone who's been caught in a trap. You know, I'm going to go and, and try to release them gently. Uh, I'm not even 100% sure they're in the trap, but I think they might be. And if they are, then I'm part of God's means uh, to, to, to help take care of that. I'm not going to justify myself to prove myself right and them wrong, those would all be not good motives. Uh, next, are my words carefully chosen to communicate love? There's more than one way to express a concern. And uh, it, it's probably somewhat intuitive. You come in uh, with 
harshness, directness, a lack of obvious concern for the other person. And that's not going to be taken as well as if you do some of the opposite things. You come in expressing your concern, expressing your love, expressing the fact that you don't know all the facts and that you just want to be restored. That would be the way to come in and choose words carefully to communicate love. Next, have I prayed for God's help? And if you haven't stopped to do this, then don't go yet. <laughs> that, you know, and, and the Lord can bring something to your mind in one of these other categories. Oh, I wasn't thinking about that. I don't have all the facts, or I hadn't considered that fact, or I hadn't seen this in my heart. I really need to work on this before I go to that person. Taking the log out of your own eye. Uh, next, is it profitable? Will it help or hurt? Will it be constructive or destructive? And confrontations can definitely go either way. You want to go with wisdom. And these are seven, seven questions to help you think through whether you're going with wisdom. All right. So, uh, a key axiom, uh, and this isn't one of the seven, but I think you'll see that it reflects, uh, some of the principles in play there. And as a matter of fact, uh, I think I once wondered, because we use this a lot, I thought, is there a proverb that lines up with this? And the answer is no. <laughs> but there's a lot of biblical wisdom that informs this. Uh, and it's really helpful to keep in mind that questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Uh, and I've seen this work out over and over and over again. It makes such a difference to go in asking questions, reflecting the fact that you don't know everything, rather than to go in making accusations. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. So the first two rules are be honest and keep current. Third, attack the problem, not the person. From verses 29 and 30 of Ephesians 4, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So, what's the connection here? It's that words that attack the person are unwholesome and do not fit the need of the moment. And so, we need to, number one, put off words that tear down and attack the person. These kinds of words are like poison, like the thrust of a sword, it says in Proverbs 12, verse 18. With, uh, with the warnings that we, that I mentioned earlier from James 3 and all through the book, book of Proverbs, Proverbs 18, 21 specifically, life and death are in the power of the tongue. So your tongue can either bring life or, in this context, words that tear down and attack brings death. Next, we see in verse 30, in the text we're in, we can grieve the Holy Spirit by using such words. And then also from our text, verse 29, the word translated unwholesome literally means rotten. Rotten words. They stink and are good for nothing. That's that's the sort of lexical sense of that word. Words that are used to tear down and attack the person bring death rather than life 
They're like the thrusts of a sword. They grieve the Holy Spirit, and they are rotten words. They're so far removed from the sweet fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5, just the polar opposite. So having put off words that tear down and attack the person, secondly, we put on words that build up the person and attack the problem instead. When you attack the person, you bypass the problem. And I would say even you tend to to compound the problem when you attack the person instead. And again, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, you need to consider the other person's more important, their interests, I'm sorry, more important than your own. So that's, that is uh, the one side of things. The other side, positively, is attacking the problem means finding a solution. So you don't just hesitate to attack uh, the problem, you find a solution. I'm sorry, you don't just hesitate to attack the person, you find a solution. So, some ways to do that. Here are three questions to ask to help you find a solution. First one, why did God allow this to happen? Why is there tension? Why is there a conflict? And we know from Romans 8, verses 28 and 29, that everything works out for what? For our good. And in context, our good is actually our sanctification. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified. Those whom he sanctified, he also glorified. It's that golden chain of redemption. And so, what does God have in this that is for my sanctification? Leading to letter B there. What character issues is God trying to deal with in me? What is he trying to deal with in me? And this, of course, is a, is a direct application of Matthew 7, removing the log from your own eye. And just realize, if it hasn't been pointed out to you before, when Jesus says that, uh, he is saying when there's an issue, he doesn't say if there's a log in your eye. He says if you notice a speck in your brother's eye, there is a log in your eye. So deal with it. And this is, this is a question. It's not always obvious. You know, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know them? It's not always obvious, but you start asking questions like these and asking the Lord to help you, and you will, with his help, see that log and being able to deal with it. So letter C, then, having asked the questions and seen maybe what the issue is, what plan needs to be formulated to deal with this issue? Uh, what steps do I need to take in faith to pursue peace in this situation and to show love? And it's important here to be specific. Uh, Randy Patton, I think, is the one who likes to say, change doesn't happen in fuzzy land. Growth takes intentional effort. Uh, and notice in those three questions, as you intentionally attack the problem and not the person, where are you looking first? Yourself. Yes. Matthew 7, again, you're getting the log out of your own eye. And friends, this takes a lot of humility. And that is a precious thing. God says in Isaiah 66 that he looks on the one who is humble and contrite and who trembles at his word. And that is the kind of heart that's going to be willing and able to see a log in his or her own eye. Okay, so the first three rules, can you say them with me? Be honest. Keep current. Yeah, you have to look back, don't you? Attack the problem, not the person. Good. Be honest. Keep current. Attack the problem, not the person. 
finally. And it, you'll do well to memorize those. It's just, it's, it is very helpful. Fourth and finally, act, don't react. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Conflicts and arguments usually arise when people react emotionally to something they don't like. The essence of this rule, rule number four, is that you must control your emotions. Act, don't react. So what does this look like? Paul breaks it down for us, starting in verse 31. First, he tells us what to put off. And he's very detailed and specific in this. We need to put off bitterness. We need to put off bitterness. Bitterness is a settled hostility that poisons the whole inner man. And again, where does rotten fruit proceed from? A heart that's full of it. And so bitterness needs to be put off. And you'll see there's overlap in some of these, and that's intentional, but there's nuances here that are worth thinking about. Secondly, wrath. We need to put off wrath, which is flaring outbursts of rage, an explosion on the outside that reveals the feelings on the inside. And there are actually two words in in the Greek that can both be translated anger. One has to do more with that inner anger, and the other has to do more with the outer anger that explodes. And both need to be put off. And actually, that's probably, yeah, the next one is the, the other one. So, letter C. Anger, that's the internal smoldering, settled indignation or hostility that frequently seeks revenge. So whether you have the tendency to clam up or to explode, those are very much related, and they both need to be put off. Next, need to put off clamor, which is brawling, characterized by loud noise, shouting, harsh contention and strife, public quarreling, and brawling. So this is more of that outworking of the heart that needs to be made right. So we put all of these off. Next one is slander. Slander is speech that injures, speech that makes false charges or accusations that defame another person's reputation. So this is just sort of delineating all of the ways in which from our hearts, either inside our hearts or outside our hearts, we are attacking the person rather than the problem. Finally, put off malice, which is the desire to harm others or see them suffer. Malice destroys fellowship. And you'll see, like I said, there's a lot of overlap here and interconnectedness. You, if you find one of these that is really like the, the, the primary manifestation of what needs to be put off and you really work hard on that one, you might see two or three of the others kind of fall away. But listing them all out and thinking about the need to get all of them to be put off is helpful. So that's verse 31, what to put off. Verse 32 tells us what to put on, starting with kindness. And you'll see these are just sort of the polar opposites of everything in verse 31. Kindness is benevolent. It's helpful. It's friendly. It's considerate. It's generous. So how do you 
uh, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others, look at this list. It'll give you the practical outworkings of that. Put on kindness. Secondly, put on tenderheartedness, which is compassionate. It's sympathetic. You seek to understand the other person's situation, the difficulties they're facing. Whatever it takes, put on tenderheartedness. Cultivate gentleness, sympathy, and compassion towards them. And then put on forgiveness. Be forgiving. Be willing to cancel a debt. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, why not rather be wronged? And and just to point back, I haven't mentioned this in a little while, what came in the first three chapters? All of the glorious riches that are ours in Christ. We can afford to forgive a debt. So, what happens when we practice this, putting off and putting on? Uh, I like the imagery uh, in Wayne Mack's quote here. We need to communicate like two lovers, not two lawyers. Uh, the tendency when we are attacking the person and not the problem, and that's kind of ironic probably because lawyers are supposed to attack problems, but it ends up looking like two lawyers going after each other rather than two lovers seeing each other as the object first of God's love and then the love that he's given them for each other through the union that he's put them in. That's especially when it comes to marriage. But Paul says, of course, in the context of the church, we're members of one another. And so that should look like love. You know, this is this is talking about marriage specifically. But in all of our relationships, it needs to look like love. Uh, underscoring the importance of this, uh, and again, this is particularly in the context of marriage, but, but it is more broadly applicable. Wayne Mack says this, In the marriage relationship, communication may be termed survival. And that, again, I think gets to why Pastor Dan told me that the first... Uh, most important text for marriage is First John 1, 6 and 7, having an open and honest uh, attitude, which will result in communication, uh, humble communication about sin. So in the marriage relationship, communication may be termed survival. It is not optional, but vital. It is the life stream, the nerve, the heartbeat. Where it is lacking, the marriage relationship deteriorates and dies. Where it is healthy, the marriage relationship flourishes and the two become one. So again, for good reason, this will be probably among the most useful content for you, both in your own life, your relationships, and also uh, those you get to help in counseling. And that about wraps up our content. Uh, but if I could, and you guys can flip your pages if you need to, get you to say the rules with me one more time. Rule number one, be honest, keep current, attack the problem, not the person, act, don't react. Very good. The four rules of communications from Ephesians 4. And uh, I just want to encourage you to think about this as we close. Does God have you here this morning just so that you can learn how to help others or also so that you yourself can grow and change? You, each of us, we need to grow and change. So how are you going to apply this to your own life? Think just a moment about your closest relationship or relationships. And as we close together in prayer... 
prayerfully resolve to walk more lovingly in your communication, to be honest, to keep current, to attack the problem rather than people, and to be proactive rather than reactive. If you will put on love in these ways and your close relationships, they will resemble even more the sweet and unified fellowship that God intends. So as we close in a word of prayer, be prayerful about that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth and the wisdom of your word, that it is absolutely sufficient and practical for all the issues of life and godliness. Uh, Father, we know that um, sin is so weighty and prevalent, uh, even in our own hearts, but certainly in uh, the world and even in the church, that uh, an hour is not nearly enough to uh, accumulate or assimilate the wisdom uh, that we need to walk in in terms of our communication. Uh, seeking that open and honest heart attitude about our sin. But I pray, Father, that these four rules would be of benefit uh, to each one of us in this room as we reflect on them. Father, as we let your spirit have his way through the truth of your word in applying these things to our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you'd help each of these dear people, uh, and myself included, to reflect on our closest relationships and how we might humbly, with contrition, with confidence in the riches that are ours in Christ, uh, put these things into practice in a way that does make our relationships more like the sweet union that you have purposed them to be as a reflection of the gospel, showing uh, the world what you look like to the glory of your Son. We pray in his name. Amen.